I'm James Jacobson in Maui, Hawaii. And I'm Pamela Lawrence in San Francisco, California. And I'm Caroline Winter in Adelaide, Australia. Welcome to Dog Edition, the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. Coming up, our Dog Days of Summer season continues with the latest town headlines and the story of Gobi, a scruffy homeless little dog who earned her name after tailing an ultramarathoner. And if you've ever really wanted to talk to your dog, and I mean really talk to your dog, then don't go anywhere because we're going to meet an animal communicator who's giving animals a voice. So if you love dogs as much as we do, pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's take a walk. We've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey Pepper, want to go for a walk? So I've had a fascination with things going missing all my life, especially people. Like, why do they choose to disappear? Where do they go? Why don't they want to be found? There's so many questions. Now, that's obviously different for dogs. They don't wake up one day and decide to disappear. But when they do go missing, I've often wondered if there's an appropriate length of time before they stop being your dog and become the new owner's dog, the person who's found them, of course, depending on the circumstances. So as we stop by the hydrant in this episode, I've got some questions to ask. Pam, what if your dog went missing and was found safe and sound seven weeks later? So he'd been taken in by another family. What would be your expectations in this situation? Hmm. Seven weeks? Hmm. Well, I think definitely I would expect to have the dog back. And I think after seven weeks, the people might be begging me to take Pepper back. Is <laughs> that kind of dog? But no, I mean, Here. it's a short amount of time. So I, I would think the dog would still remember me, obviously, after seven weeks. Yeah, I, I think. They, I, I would expect the dog back, for sure. So no visitation rights? Oh, okay. If they were nice, yeah, <laughs> I'd say, yeah, you could, you could come visit. But I, (laughs) yeah, okay, yes, to visitation rights. Okay, okay. So what about you, Jim? What if Kanga or Rue disappeared and were found after seven months? Seven months, not seven Mm. weeks, you changed the question. I would say, yes, of course I want them back. And I think both my dogs would handle the whole situation differently because I try to look at it through their perspective. And I think Kanga would be pretty adaptable because she knows how to use her cute little face and her demeanor. So probably after seven minutes after being found, the person would feel like, oh, I found my dream dog. And Kanga would do that. Rue, not so much. <laughs> but in general, yeah, I'd want to back. And sure, they can have visitation rights. But yeah, I think the dogs remember me and my wife after seven months for sure. Okay, seven months. So I want you now to imagine getting a phone call seven years after your dog disappeared. Mm. <laughs> seven years. Okay. That's a different story. Yeah, right? Only to be told it's alive and well and is living more than 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometres in uh, my language from home. (laughs) Well, that is exactly what happened to a Florida woman and her dog, Sergeant Pepper, a Yorkshire Terrier mix who went missing and was reported stolen way back in 2014. But just a few weeks ago, he was found by animal control in Charlotte, Michigan. (laughs) Michigan? What? Long way from home. (laughs) Okay. I have questions. (laughs) So (laughs) 
This is mind-blowing. All right, I have some questions. Where where had Sergeant Pepper been all of those years? And wasn't he microchipped? Was was Sergeant Pepper microchipped? How, wh- were the were the people who took him in huge Beatles fans? <laughs> did did Sergeant Pepper ever reunite? I have to know what's what's the uh, rest of the story. I know, I know. So we don't actually know all of the details, but yes, the answer to the big question was he microchipped? Yes, he was. What we also know is Sergeant Pepper's owner discovered a found online post on Craigslist, hmm. but the dog had already been claimed by someone who wasn't actually his real owner, so he's kind of disappeared uh, some years ago. There was a police report filed at the time and the microchip company was also contacted about it all, but the dog was never located, well, at least until now. Hmm. So how do they end up finding him in Michigan all the way from Florida? So I'm interested because there's five years that he was living with uh, a family that it turns out that he'd been living with this family. So there's a couple of years where we're not quite sure what Sergeant Pepper was doing. I reckon he was hitching around the country. But <laughs> but as we understand, the family was unaware of his microchip and stolen status. Hmm. Yeah, Pam's not so sure about that. I'm suspicious of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I agree. It's a, it's a big question. I'm also not sure how the dog ended up with the Eaton County Animal Control in Charlotte, but because the microchip contact info was updated as recently as last February, so February 2020, and the department then was able to contact the owner immediately when they found the dog. And so the original owner in Florida got on a plane and was reunited with her pup that she hadn't seen since he was six years old. Oh, that's incredible. I wish I had been a fly on the wall when that reunion took place. I I bet it was just something special to see. I cannot even imagine losing one of my dogs, let alone for that long, and then finding them all those years later. I don't know. It must have been a really, really difficult decision for the new family to let Sergeant Pepper go back to his original Mm, owner. mm. I mean, he was away from from her longer than he was with her, right? Right. And it says a lot about the family who gave him back, especially since they weren't aware that the dog had been stolen, Mm -hmm. or were they? (laughs) But it also poses a really interesting dilemma, philosophical dilemma. I mean, would the dog still know you if it had been five years? And is it even Mm -hmm. fairer for you to take it back after all that length of time? Or do you have special rights because you are the original owner? This goes to the whole idea of, unfortunately, dogs being property in too much of this uh, country. But it's also a really good news story because it talks about the power of microchipping. And although in this case, the family who found Sergeant Pepper didn't get him scanned to see if he had a microchip, it underscores the importance of doing that. And it's a good reminder for all of us that if you ever find a dog, that's the first thing you should do. Find out if the dog has a microchip because... While less than 4% of dogs in the U.S. do have a microchip, Sgt. Pepper was one of them. Well, I'm glad my dogs are microchipped, just in case they ever get lost. Yeah, same. And that's actually a very shockingly low number. I feel like everybody should be microchipping their dogs. It's uh, it's harmless to the dog, and it could, you know, in the long term, save their save their lives. So It's the size of a little grain of rice, <laughs> and it doesn't hurt the dog at all, and it can really make a difference. Wow. Well, yes, I am certainly glad that mine are microchipped too. I wonder, though, with so many more people working from home these days, if the number of lost dogs has actually dropped. That is a good question. We need to research that. But perhaps maybe all those dogs that used to be lost or have gone missing 
are now going to work. Because <laughs> I just learned about a dog named Heaven, which has to be Home Depot's cutest employee ever. Heaven is a rescue dog in Kentucky who has found her calling as a helper at the giant home improvement store. And working, that's in air quotes, working at Home Depot has helped this timid and frightened little dog transform into one of the happiest of pups. Aww. And Heaven's adopted owner, whose name is Jackie Rackers, told her story to the dodo. She talked about how she started taking Heaven to the store just to help the dog cope with the dog's fears. And it completely transformed the pup. The dog breaks out of her shell when she's in the store and she discovers new things in all the aisles. And she's kind of like a goodwill ambassador, befriending customers and staff. And it's pretty amazing. She She's become so much a part of the team there at Home Depot that she has her own orange apron tied around her belly and her neck. <laughs> That's cute. Which she proudly wears. That is so cute. That is mm. so cute. I reckon she'd be great for business too. <laughs> I would cute. definitely get me to a Home Depot if we had one here. We have something similar, uh, a store called Bunnings, and you are allowed to take your dog. Um, we've taken Harvey a few times, but he hasn't quite got an apron yet, so I might have to, uh, <laughs> I might have to change that. Um, but, you know, importantly, it sounds like, such a wonderful transformation for the dog that was obviously suffering from, from you know, quite a few fears. I think that's the best part about the story. Jackie, her guardian, says that Heaven used to be scared of everything at first, but with a lot of training and patience, she's learned to trust. And now she, you know, pays it forward and goes out of her way to find people in the store who are in need of comfort and gives them a little smile and a little cuddle, which you don't want from most Home Depot employees. So it's pretty good. <laughs> Oh, that's really sweet. Oh, and don't dogs just know how to seek out people who need them, and sometimes in the most unusual places. That story coming up next. We'll be right back. You're listening to Dog Edition. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. It's a strange thing to do, sprinkle this powder on my food, but I wouldn't have it any other way. My time with you is precious and irreplaceable, and I'm thrilled to be with you for as long as possible. Here's to puppy playtime and senior snoozes. <laughs> no matter how old I get, I want my ever pup. It just makes me feel good in this life and the next, and the next, and the next. I am so grateful to be your dog and for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Welcome back to Dog Edition. We continue with our Dog Days of Summer season with a story submitted to us by Saskia Edwards as part of our 101 Dog Stories contest. Saskia takes us on a journey to the Gobi Desert 
and introduces us to an ultramarathoner, a stray little dog, and an incredible test of endurance. Here's the desert dog I couldn't desert. Dion Leonard is an ultramarathon runner. Ultramarathons are not like regular marathons. For one thing, they can be a lot longer and often held in extreme places and conditions. They test people psychologically, physically, and frankly, emotionally. A few years ago, Dion was about to start one of these intense races in the desert in China. The Gobi Desert in China was where this race was, and one of the hottest and windiest and driest locations known to man. The race is 250-kilometer race. You know, it goes for a whole week. You have to carry all of your food and kit to survive the week as well. It was going to be rough, but what Dion didn't realize at the time was that this was to be the beginning of a much bigger test of his endurance in a totally different way. It started with a little dog who seemed to appear out of nowhere, following and bothering Dion on day two of the race. It's about 100 runners at the race, and uh, we were about to set off and run off for the day of running 25 miles, so about 42 kilometres. She was chewing on my shoes. She was chewing on specifically the gaiters that keep the sand out of your shoes. I sort of flicked her off with my foot and told her to go away. She jumped back onto my shoes and she started chewing on the sand gaiters again. Seeing this dog keeping chewing on my shoes was a little bit annoying. So <laughs> the race started and everyone's running down the trail. And here I am with this damn dog on my leg and I'm trying to run down the trail and I can't get rid of her. Could you describe how she looked when you first saw her? She was in a pretty pretty bad condition. She, I mean, she was a young dog. She had really bad skin. Her hair on the back of her coat was really, really wiry. You know, you could tell she'd had a really tough life, but there's something about her. Like, she was a sweet dog. She was always very friendly with people. She trusted people. But who knows where she came from, what she was doing out there, what she was living on, what she was eating, etc. We think she's a mix between Chihuahua and Shih Tzu, which is very, very common for that part of northwest China. Very short legs, very big brown eyes, and she's got this really weird curly tail as well, and she's a really <laughs> unique-looking dog. This dog didn't appear to have an owner and followed Dion all day. She actually ran the whole 25 miles that day behind me or at the time she'd run ahead of me. Yeah, for the whole day she was there, but I never spoke to her. I never gave her any of my food. I remember cr crossing the finish line that day. They were sort of clapping and cheering and playing the drums, and I thought, this is really weird. Why are they, why are they <laughs> doing that for me? And uh, it wasn't until I'd crossed the finish line and I looked behind me and they were still clapping and cheering and playing the drums that it was for the little dog running in behind me. <laughs> but it was at that moment because, you know, I'm such a competitive person when I go to these races. As I finished and I saw what she'd done and I just, it sort of hit me that I hadn't spoken to her, I hadn't given her any food and she collapsed in a tent next to me and I started to look after her. And Dion even gave her a name, Gobi, after the desert where she was found. She slept in Dion's tent that night. It's kind of cool, little dog had slept next to me. She smelt really bad and... Uh, I still wasn't thinking very much of it until day three. Day three was where things between Gobi and Dion changed. This leg of the race was about another 25 miles and included a river crossing with deep water and ferocious currents. 
they were really strong currents and it could sort of push you away, it could drag you away if you sort of weren't really strong footed. Mm-hmm. And as I was walking through the one of the river crossings, I was getting across to about halfway when I could hear this barking and yelping and whining behind me and it sort of stopped me in my tracks. And I turned around to see this dog running up and down the riverbank and she was panicking and she was worried that I'd left her there, which of course I had because I was running a race, you know, first and second Mm. runners were ahead of me in the race and yeah, all of this commotion happened behind me and it it, it did stop me in my tracks because I wasn't sure what was happening to the dog and if she'd have tried crossing the water, you know, she would have been washed away. I made this split decision to go back and pick her up. And as I knelt down to pick her up, she looked at me with sort of trust and a bit of sort of love in her eyes. And I picked her up and I sort of held her a little bit away from me, just hoping she wouldn't bite me. But as I sort of held her, she sort of made her way into my sort of chest and into my arms. And the next thing she's looking up at me with these big brown eyes. And it was the real moment where I could see this love in her eyes. and. I just felt this massive connection to it and yeah, I, I can't explain what happened in that moment, but that was a moment that would change both our lives forever. Dion jeopardised his chances of winning the race to help the dog. Gobi managed to keep running, except on days when it was too hot. Yeah, Gobi's a very fast dog. She's <laughs> capable of running much quicker than I am and those four legs, like they could motor through the desert. It made running the desert a lot easier for me because it put a smile on my face to see the fun she was having out there. When did you realize, okay, this dog has to come home with me? Yeah, we had so many moments out there that just made me realize that I needed to bring Gobi home and give her a better life. So I made her that promise out in the desert to, to do that. And having a very difficult, destructive, uh, depressive and abusive upbringing myself and leaving home at the age of 13, I sort of felt a little bit of myself in Gobi. So I wanted to give her a better life and be the person, I guess, that I wanted to have around me when I was younger. Dion's childhood was tough. He was homeless like Gobi too. I lived in someone's shed. I've lived under bridges. I've lived in hotels, caravans, hostels, pretty terrible conditions just to try and put myself through school and not knowing where food was going to come from one day to the next and having to go out and find a job at the age of 13. It's made me sort of a very vulnerable person growing up and something that I realised Gobi was also very vulnerable in the desert as well and that she had nothing and nobody out there to look after us. It was a simple thing for me to be able to do to to sort of make the promise and then I had to sort of stick through it and make sure that uh, we got Gobi home. It was a simple promise to make, but getting Gobi home would be anything but simple. Dion had to return home to Scotland. He already had a flight booked, but Gobi couldn't come with him yet. She needed to get a bunch of vaccinations and paperwork before she could travel. But a volunteer said they'd look after her in China. She was being looked after in a city called Urumqi, a city of three million people. Dion started a crowdfunding campaign, he started getting media attention, and he actually raised all the money he needed to get Gobi to the UK. But then he got a call. And I received a phone call to say that she'd gone missing, and of course I was you know, devastated and heartbroken to hear that she'd missing in that big city of three million people as well. Gobi had run away. She'd gone missing. 
that was really the first sort of moments that I had to sort of test my commitment and promise to Gobi of, you know, bringing her home. Mm. So when did you decide that you'd personally go and try and find her? Well, I had to speak to my employers to say, look, uh, you remember that story <laughs> of me and the dog and well, unfortunately she's gone missing now and uh, they were great. They gave me a blessing to go out there and to, to look for her. So Dion took several flights and travelled thousands of miles back to China. Not knowing the language, not knowing anyone and setting up a search and volunteer team was certainly pretty overwhelming, but that's what yeah. I sort of set out to do and to make sure that I at least tried my best to try and find her, which... I thought it was probably really a needle in a haystack. What kind of help did you start to get or how did the search go? So I started off with one lady and she would help me putting up these posters of uh, Gobi being missing. And it also had a reward amount of money on there for anyone that found Gobi. They would get 10,000 Chinese dollars as well. So it was sort of creating a little bit of uh, awareness around the streets and it was then that Social media started to pick up in China on the story and how I'd travelled all of this way for this uh, little dog. They thought it was really amazing. And then the press started to pick up on it. And whilst all this was happening, more and more and more volunteers started to come out and to help. And suddenly we had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers searching day and night (laughs) for Gobi. Yeah, it was incredible. It It really was amazing. All these people coming together, looking for Gobi, it was amazing. But with all the hype... Things took an unexpected turn. There was a lot of pressure on on myself to, to find Gobi and we had mm. to just keep searching and keep looking. And, and one of the things that happened was we had that 10,000 Chinese dollars. It's equivalent to three months salary for someone in that area. So yeah, a bit of a negative as well because we had mm. a lot of bad people coming out of the uh, out of the woodworks trying to tell me that they had Gobi, they wanted more money, they we're going to kill Gobi if I didn't give them oh all God. money. They would, we would have phone calls from people saying, we've got your dog, and I'd go around to their home and, you know, to be a Labrador. And I'd say, <laughs> that that's, this isn't the dog, is it? And they're like, no. Then it got downright scary. The story gained so much news media, social media popularity that the Chinese government started to also message us to say, look, we're happy with everything that's going on, but if this turns sour or if things go wrong or if Dion starts to say negative things to the press, then we're going to shut down the search and I'd be wow. you know, kicked out of the country straight away. So this turned into a way more complicated and stressful search than you first anticipated. At any point, did you sort of give up hope and think, this is too complicated and difficult, I need to just give this search up? The search was spiralling out of control. I was becoming very depressed about the state of where we were going with the search and the likelihood that we wouldn't find Gobi. It was certainly a very, very difficult period and something that I wouldn't ever want to have to go through again. Dion was really about to throw in the towel, give it all up, but then he got a message. It was actually late one evening and we received a message to say, someone's just sent a photo of this dog and they think it's Gobi. And there was a father and son who were walking through a park and they noticed this little dog between the bushes and looking sort of thirsty and hungry. And they thought, ah, I think that's the dog that's, in the, that's been missing that everyone's talking about. And we'll send a picture over and we'll see if it's the dog. When we received the picture, I wasn't so sure it was Gobi. Uh, the picture wasn't great. 
And the dog that was in the picture had this wound on its head. Hesitantly, Dion and some volunteers made a one-hour drive to see the dog. By the time we got there, I was pretty tired and pretty much over it all. And I remember walking up into the home thinking, this isn't going to be it. This is going to be another shakedown for money, another problem. As I walked into the house, I walked in behind the translator, the driver. So I was the last person to walk in and I hadn't said a word. And across the other side of the lounge room was this little dog. And it came running towards me and it was barking and yelping and whining, just like the dog along the river that day and it jumped mm. up into my arms and I realised straight away it was Gobi. And how did you feel? Oh, I was in tears. I was like uh, amazed, uh, overwhelmed, overjoyed. I, I could not believe it. Everyone else around me just kept saying, is that Gobi? Is that Gobi? I was like, yes, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, I just couldn't believe it. Gobi was injured but alive. Dion decided to stay in China this time to organise the paperwork for Gobi to travel. And then finally, they boarded the flight from China to Europe. Gobi actually flew next to me in a little <laughs> bag and, you know, a little carry-on bag. So she sat next to me in the plane. You know, as we drove down the street in, in Edinburgh where we, where we live, like people in the street sort of clapping and cheering. And then, of course, we had a little party at our place as well. So it was the first time I'd probably thought about it for six months that I'd been away, we'd actually made this happen and it had finally come to fruition that we'd brought Gobi home. Gobi settled into Scottish life. The weather is quite different from the desert, though. She got used to the cat and becoming a dog celebrity. She has an Instagram, at Finding Gobi, and Dion wrote a book called Finding Gobi, A Little Dog with a Very Big Heart. And it's even looking like it's going to be turned into a movie. Not bad for a stray desert dog. If you'd have told me as a 13-year-old boy when I left home with nothing that I'd have this amazing story and Gobi as a stray desert dog would also leave the Gobi Desert and have this amazing story as well, it's, um, it's pretty incredible to think where life can take you. Life is full of surprises. I would never have ever have guessed that I would have, you know, foregone winning a race for a little dog that I didn't know. But, you know, at the end of the day, the race was irrelevant and... I guess I won Gobi in the end, and that was <laughs> that was pretty cool as well. Good consolation prize. Absolutely the best, and I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for any award or any medal. That's for sure. Dion Leonard, for Dog Edition. I'm Saskia Edwards in Mexico City, Mexico. The Desert Dog I Couldn't Desert is a winner of our monthly 101 Dog Stories contest, and we are awarding over $15,000 in prize money as we curate the great dog stories of the world. It was submitted to us by Saskia Edwards, who was reporting from Mexico City. And if you have a story that you'd like to share with us and would like to win some money, visit dogpodcastnetwork.com slash 101 for information on how to submit a piece to our 101 Dog Stories contest. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I know, Caro, that you, Jim, and I spend a lot of our spare time wrapping our ears around a range of shows and watching shows on YouTube. 
but we're so spoiled for choice and there are so many out there that get missed. So true, Pam. So in the spirit of word of mouth, which is how many of us hear about our great pods and channels, we've launched a new show this summer on Facebook and YouTube called Dog Lovers Live, where Jim will speak to a different podcaster or YouTuber that we think dog lovers will enjoy. So you can watch the whole chat live on Facebook or YouTube, but we'll also include a snippet of the interview here as part of Dog Edition. Okay, Jim, who's this week's guest? Well, Pam, like most dog lovers, I talk to my dogs all the time. (laughs) But are they listening? And more importantly, am I listening when they're trying to communicate with me and Molly and with each other? The world of interspecies communication is actually something that I've been interested in for decades. Someday I will share that with you all. But for our premiere episode of Dog Lovers Live, I chatted with an animal communicator, and she calls herself an animal intuitive. When I communicate with an animal, it's energy. Her name is Anne Angela Webb. She hosts the Animal Intuitive Show on YouTube. Here's some of that chat where she talks me through what it's like to hear the words, thoughts, and wishes of the animals that she tunes into. It's definitely a kind of a physics thing <laughs> that I... <laughs> quantum physics, yes. baby. Yeah, yes. no, so it's quantum physics. Okay, wow. Okay, so time and space doesn't matter. And so right. when you're doing these readings with dogs on YouTube, do they visually... Uh, look like they're engaging in a conversation with you? Um, Sometimes, um, just like if I'm talking to someone, a lot of times people will say to me, oh, he just just came right at me or just jumped on my lap. Is there a difference between the type of reading or communication that you do live on YouTube and when you're in a a private reading? I I don't recommend people call in with a really serious... um, health crisis or, you know, a dog that, you know, is possibly, or animal that's possibly going into transitioning. Um, or I, I also don't really work with missing animals on that show. But let, let's talk about each of those. Cause I, I'm intrigued with the, uh, dogs that are about to make a transition, i.e. dogs that are like really sick. Um, how do those conversations often go and and what's your role and 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 what do the dogs say um my role is usually to understand what the animal's viewpoint is on what's Mm -hmm. happening it's a conversation with the animal of explaining what that means uh you know how they're feeling what they want do they tend to be in a similar place or do you get like a great variety of, 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 of messages from dogs who are towards the end of their lives. The animals often have a sense of where they're at. Like they're feeling very much like I'm, you know, perhaps very weak. I'm tired. I'm, I don't have the fight in me. Um, or they'll say when, when maybe an option is given, like, for instance, are we going to go with cancer treatment or do you want us to just not do that? And, you know, you're given, you know, this may go quicker if we don't do that. We don't know, but we're, and then we may, may say, um, I feel like I have that fight in me. It just depends on the situation. It just depends on the animal. And, you know, it could vary a lot from animal to animal where they're at at that point. 
Let's touch on something that you, uh, and I'm mindful of the time, we got a few more minutes, but I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier, which is uh, the concept that you can connect with lost pets. How does that work? So when I tune in with them, I'm asking them what they're feeling, what they're seeing, and then what sound or sounds, smells, anything that would be identifiers that would help us to, to find them. I can ask the animal questions like, are you hungry? Um, do they feel very light to me or do they feel weighty? Do they feel, um, you know, like they're not on this plane essentially mm-hmm. is, can be part of the conversation. What's the funniest thing an animal's ever told you in one of your readings? <laughs> um, they said, I'm really attuned to the news and a news hound. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love the news and I am so aware of what's going with the news and, and football <laughs> and, you know, just sports in general, you know, and it was funny to me that she brought that up. Like she wanted yeah. us to understand that she, knows what's going on all the time. That was Anne Angelo Webb, and she hosts the Animal Intuitive Show on YouTube. And she's first in our Dog Lovers Live chats on Facebook and YouTube, which we'll have each week and we'll feature some in our Dog Edition episodes. And you can tune in and watch them over the summer for a limited time at dogloverslive.com. Well, that is all for today's episode of Dog Edition. I want to thank you for bringing us along with you on your walk today. Dog Podcast Network has a sister show called The Long Leash. It's where you can hear Jim's extended conversations with some of our guests from this show. This week, I speak with Chris Roy, who is a very, very smart IT guy who has built an amazing not-for-profit business that helps connect dogs that need rescuing with the transportation that they need to get from non-non-kill dog shelters to non-kill dog shelters where there's greater capacity and demand for those dogs. He's really, really cool. I think you'll enjoy this conversation. And on the next episode of Dog Edition, when fate delivers your dog, a beautiful modern fairy tale about how saying yes to life is revitalizing even in death. You can listen to our entire back catalog of shows at dogedition.com. And there on that website, there is a little blue button in the bottom right of every episode page where you can easily leave us a voicemail and share your stories and thoughts with us. Who knows, we may work that into a future episode. Follow Dog Edition in whatever podcast app you use to listen and please leave us a review. I'm Caroline Winter, your resident news hound. And I'm Pamela Lawrence. See you at the dog park. And I'm James Jacobson. Again, thanks for listening today. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.